Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Cases climb. Omicron soars in the UK and Denmark as China gets its second case. Hospitalization hope. A new study, a new South African study shows severe cases are less likely. And no Shanghai surprise, China Mobile heads home after its New York delisting and... Expressions making big impressions. The UK startup behind this very lifelike robot, and it's going to anchor the rest of the show. I'm just kidding. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Yes, it's me, and it's great to be with you. We are more than ready for some holiday cheer. But before that, central bankers must address the global inflationary fear, and who'd want that as a career? Undeterred. The king of the tech sphere, a $3 trillion Apple market cap comes ever near and maybe thrilling new products will finally appear. And from Tesla to space, the final frontier, Elon Musk is Time's person of the year. But even he's a little queasy about this fellow here. Yes, you just saw it. We'll be talking to the tech pioneer behind the emotional new robots seemingly without peer Will Jackson of Engineered Arts also wants Musk to help him steer. Global markets looking a touch hmm, insincere. Okay, I'm stopping with the rhyming now. Investors are awaiting at tomorrow's Fed policy decision. Jay Powell and crew widely expected to announce a faster end to their bond buying program as pricing pressures mount. Data out this morning showing factory level prices rising by a hotter than expected 9.6% year over year in November. If you exclude food and energy, hotter too on a month-to-month basis as well. And this comes after the fastest consumer inflation data print in almost 40 years. The Bank of England, the European Central Bank and the Japanese Central Bank all meeting this week to discuss the inflationary threat. But it's a delicate COVID balance, as China well knows. Stocks across the region, they're weaker with concern that China's zero tolerance COVID policy will further pressure growth recoveries. The global COVID fight once again topping our drivers. The Omicron variant is more transmissible and better able to evade the Pfizer vaccine, but it does cause less severe illness. Those the latest findings of a major new South African study. It suggests people are more likely to catch the variant, but less likely to be hospitalised with it. Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, there was a lot there. Just give us the headlines once again, please. And can you quantify for us what this study is telling us? All right, Julia. So the bottom line here is, is that if you've been vaccinated with two doses of Pfizer, you still have a reasonable chance of catching Omicron. But the vaccine does a very good job at keeping you from becoming severely sick, from keeping you from going to the hospital or from dying. So let's take a look at those specific numbers. This was a study done by a South African a large insurance um, company. And what they found is that two doses of Pfizer were 33 percent effective against infection. That's not great. Right. That means that even if you've had two doses, you still have a pretty good chance of getting infected. But it was 70 percent effective against hospitalization. 
Um, and so that's that's good news in many ways. Many people thought Omicron, the situation was going to be even worse. So the fact that it's 70 percent effective against hospitalization, um, that is definitely good news. And, you know, this is just one study, but it meshes well with studies that another study that came out from South Africa, a study that Pfizer did. They're all kind of finding uh, findings along similar lines. Julia? Yeah, we're seeing parallels with all of these studies. What about reinfection risk? So reinfection, so if you've gotten Delta and you're concerned about being infected with Omicron, uh, that's a reasonable concern. As we've seen, there's only 33% uh, protection. So if you've been vaccinated or if you've had Delta, there is still a reasonable chance that you could become infected with Omicron, but chances are you will not get very sick. That's what these results are showing. Yeah, but just because you've had COVID in the past doesn't mean you can't catch COVID once again and... um Oh boy, once again, the need still to be vaccinated and to get that booster shot. Still the message, I think, from this study too, Elizabeth. Yes. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. The boosters, this study, Julia, didn't look at boosters, but others have and shown that it does help against Omicron. You got it. Thank you so much for that there. Lortis on the line. Right now in the UK House of Commons, lawmakers are about to vote on a new COVID restriction package with the Prime Minister facing his biggest revolt of his premiership. Members of Boris Johnson's own party signalling opposition against the tougher measures to fight the Omicron threat. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now on this. But the bottom line, Salma, is we are expecting to see a positive vote for these measures, not because the government's own Conservative Party is going to back them, but the opposition Labour Party will. And Keir Starmer, the head of the opposition party, saying, look, it's the right thing to do. Look, I think, Julie, everybody's going to be watching for these COVID restrictions to come through. But the real debate here is about whether or not the prime minister's own party is going to back him. Dozens of MPs, conservative backbenchers, are set to vote against their own prime minister, against these measures. Now, many of them say that they see these new rules as curbing civil liberties, particularly the COVID pass. That's one of the crucial controversial ones. That is a pass, a requirement to either show that you are fully vaccinated or show a negative test before you go into mass public venues. Think nightclubs or sports stadiums. A lot of conservative MPs take issue with this. They say it's a step towards authoritarianism. We just saw the health secretary, Saja Javid, on his feet in the House of Commons, answering, responding to that criticism, saying these restrictions are absolutely necessary because the authorities are concerned about this Omicron variant, Julia. The number of cases is doubling every two to three days is set to be, if today, if not any day now, the predominant strain here in London. It should be the predominant strain by the end of the month. Health officials saying it is more transmissible, so it sets a very serious threat through the holiday season. Still, you have these dozens of MPs who are going to vote against it. And why this is so important, Julia, is because the Prime Minister right now is facing a battle for his political survival. So if he can't convince his own party, his own backbenchers, his own uh, uh, side, if you will, to to push through these measures, that's when you begin to see cracks in the system. So this is the first true test of his authority since these scandals, these Christmas party scandals, plural, broke out last week, Julia. Yeah, the question is, is it about the prime minister and his inability to, to your point, push his own party over the line on these measures or the belief that this is contravening civil liberties? We've seen this in other nations across the broader European region as well. It's interesting because I saw a report at the weekend and it was UK researchers projecting 
that without these additional mitigation measures in the UK, the surge fueled by the Omicron variant uh, in England this winter may see more hospitalizations than actually we saw this time last year. If that's not a way to convince your party and the country that this is the right step, however inconvenient, I don't know what is. I mean, Julia, politics is nothing but the power of persuasion, right? And that's what's in question here, is if Prime Minister Boris Johnson is unable to persuade his own party to do what are really, by most uh, standards, common sense measures. If you compare the measures here in the UK compared to most of Western Europe, these are very, very minimal. Across most of Western Europe, you have to show some sort of vaccine certificate or negative test just to get into a cafe or a bar or a restaurant. That's not the case here. Masks were only made mandatory last week. These work-from-home orders that went into place yesterday, again, all very common sense measures. It's nothing like a full-style lockdown that we're seeing in other parts of Western Europe to battle Omicron. So again, to get back to that point, if the prime minister cannot persuade his own party to implement these common sense measures, what if Omicron gets worse, Julia? What if more measures are needed? What if the prime minister needs to get tougher and he can't find that support within his own party? That's when you really get into heart water and you start to wonder if this prime minister still wields that authority, wields that power over his own MPs, Julia. Yeah, too much politics in this pandemic all over the world, including in the UK. And not enough health professionals, I think, are being listened to. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you for that. China's COVID conundrum, the nation's detecting its second case of the Omicron variant in a man who'd recently travelled from overseas. However, the traveller didn't test positive until two weeks after arriving in Shanghai, posing a fresh challenge to the government's zero COVID strategy, as Christy Lustout reports. After health authorities in Tianjin detected mainland China's first case of the Omicron variant, another case has been detected in Guangzhou. A state media reports that the case involves a 67-year-old male. On November the 27th, he touched down in Shanghai. He was tested multiple times during two weeks of hotel quarantine. He then flew from Shanghai to Guangzhou, where he tested positive for the Omicron variant. At the epicenter of China's latest flare-up of infection continues to be the factory and shipping hub of Zhejiang province. On Monday, China reported 51 new local cases of the virus, including 44 in Zhejiang. Zhejiang is home to tech giant Alibaba, as well as a major shipping port, Ningbo Zhoushan, the world's third busiest container port. Back in August, a single confirmed case shut down the port for weeks, causing shipping congestion and wreaking havoc on the global supply chain. And now tens of thousands of citizens across Zhejiang province are in quarantine. And more than a dozen Chinese-listed companies have said that they had suspended production in parts of Zhejiang in response to local COVID-19 restrictions. As China battles this small flare-up of infection, the final version of the Beijing Winter Olympic Games playbook has been released. And in this era of Omicron, it offers clarity on booster shots. Athletes are, quote, strongly encouraged to get COVID-19 booster shots, but not mandated to do so. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Let's move on. Reconnected China Mobile, the country's largest telco, is set to list in Shanghai. This after the state-run giant was forced to delist from the New York Stock Exchange over U.S. national security concerns. And Selena Wang joins us now with more. Selena, great to have you with us. I don't think we can overplay the huge vested interest in making this a success, particularly relative to being listed in the United States, for example. But it's also a crucial company to China's broader 5G ambitions. This has to work and it has to be lucrative. 
Yeah, you could partially see this, Julia, as a symbolic move after getting kicked out of New York, China Mobile, China's largest telecom company, now going back to the home stock market. China Mobile's chairman in August put it this way, saying that this listing in Shanghai possible listing domestically would allow its customers to benefit from the growth of the company since its customer market is in fact in mainland China. This, however, Julia, has been a long time coming back in January this company, as, law, as well as two other state-run telecom companies, were forced to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. That was after the Trump administration banned Americans from investing in companies that the administration had deemed were threats to national security. Now, it is not clear at this point how much money exactly China Mobile would raise from the Shanghai listing, but based on what we know about the number of shares it would plan to raise and the closing price of its stock in Hong Kong on Monday, it could be raising about $5 billion. And yes, as you say, big 5G plans here. The company has said in its prospectus that it wants to use roughly half of the money it raises from the Shanghai listing for its 5G plans. China Mobile is critical to China's ambitions in the global race and 5G development. The country aims to triple the number of 5G based stations it has by 2025, which would be an increase that would cover more than half of China's 1.4 billion people, Julia. And this is just one little piece of the broader U.S.-China-Czech tensions puzzle. Do we see more of these companies that were or actually remain listed in the United States moving over to Shanghai? And uh, you can choose to look at it in terms of a company perspective, but also as the broader tech tensions. Do we see more to come? Well, certainly, and we've just been talking about this over the past week, you've got a growing list of companies that are getting caught between U.S.-China tensions as you have Washington growing increasingly hawkish towards China. But you actually have pressure from both sides, from both the U.S. and China, that is causing the ties between the Chinese business community and Wall Street to weaken. As we talked about just last week, the U.S. banned Americans from investing in Chinese AI company SenseTime as part of broader human rights sanctions. Also recently, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission finalized rules that would allow it to delist foreign firms that refuse to open up its books to U.S. regulators. But then, Julie, at the same time, on the China side, Beijing is also making moves that makes it seem like it's discouraging Chinese companies from listing overseas. Didi, China's ride-hailing giant, has become the poster child of that. Didi is going to delist from the New York Stock Exchange after facing immense regulatory pressure from China. Julia? Yeah, Didi, sense time. Tick, tick. Watch this space. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 59 people have died in Haiti's second largest city after a gasoline tanker exploded on Monday night. Officials say dozens of people are injured and have been taken to the hospital. Rescue efforts are ongoing and the death toll is expected to rise. At least 88 people have lost their lives in five U.S. states after a tornado outbreak struck this weekend. Kentucky has reported 74 deaths alone and officials fear the number will continue to rise. Emergency crews have been digging through piles of debris, searching for those that remain missing. A powerful 7.3 magnitude earthquake struck off the eastern coast of Indonesia, sending nervous residents out into the streets and triggering tsunami warnings, which were later discontinued. At least 15 aftershocks have been reported. There are no reports of serious damage or injuries. 
Still to come, on the ground with Omicron, the head of South Africa's largest private hospital group on what he's learning about the variant. And faking a face, I speak to the creator of the humanoid robot that can mimic your expressions. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock market futures pointing to a softer open with the S&P 500 set to ease further from records. Nervousness as the Federal Reserve meets today to discuss the state of stimulus after a hotter than expected read on factory level prices. A swifter end to the Federal Reserve's bond buying seems to be priced in, but there's wariness over the central bank's timetable then for future interest rate rises. The riskiest parts of the market that have benefited the most from ample Federal Reserve support were harder hit on Monday. Meme names, if you remember, like GameStop and AMC Cinemas falling 13% or more to levels not seen since the spring. Travel stocks also pulled back sharply on continued Omicron variant concerns. Banks and financials also pulling back from recent highs too. Concern, I think, that economic growth might weaken next year. We've also seen longer-term bond yields, so bond interest rates, have also been pressured amid 2022 growth concerns. Now we return to the latest on the COVID-19 Omicron variant. A large-scale South African study suggests Omicron is easier to catch than previous variants, but less likely to cause hospitalisation. The study also indicates that Omicron is better at evading the Pfizer vaccine. Now, my next guest has witnessed the impact of the Omicron wave on South Africa firsthand. He operates the country's largest private hospital group. And joining us now is Richard Friedland. He's the CEO of NetCare. Richard, great to have you on the show. Let's talk about that study first, if I may. Your thoughts on some of the findings there. Well, many of those findings corroborate what we have seen, Julia, across our network of some 49 hospitals and 10,000 hospital beds and more than 60 primary care centers across South Africa. Thus far, and it is very early days, our data over the last 30 days indicates that we are seeing a very mild to moderate form of COVID-19. Many of the cases are asymptomatic. Uh, There is a small cohort of more elderly patients with comorbidities that are being hospitalized, but we don't yet have evidence that this variant is causing the severe disease, which really results in hospitalization and potential uh, death. What proportion of those that are being admitted, Richard, are Omicron now versus Delta? Uh, Interestingly enough, the vast majority are now Omicron. Uh, It does look like this virus is fit and robust and uh, has become the predominant variant taking over from the Delta variant here in South Africa. And what about adults versus children in terms of admissions? So we've seen a few interesting things around admissions, if if I may mention them. Firstly, um, in the first three waves, as we saw a rise in community transmission, we saw in tandem a rise in hospital admissions. And patients coming into our hospitals were desperately ill. Let, Let me give you an example. In our first three waves, we treated 126,000 patients, of which 44% of them had to be admitted to hospital, and 26% of those patients required ICU. Mm. Every one of the patients we admitted required oxygen. We're not seeing that at the moment. And at the moment, 
even though community transmission is in the 20s and 30% in certain provinces, we're seeing very low hospital admissions and only about one in five patients requiring any form of oxygen, uh, which tells us that thus far, and it is early days, this does appear to be uh, mild and moderate. And obviously there might be reasons for that. So for those that are the most severely ill, it's, is it perhaps comorbidities or are you unable to say at this point? Are you, is it, can we directly point to the severity of COVID and say these people are severely ill with COVID or it's the other things that they're suffering from that perhaps are a key part of, of how severely they're ill, particularly if we're not seeing, to your point, the, the level of oxygen demand that we've seen with previous waves? Yes, and I think you raised the quintessential question because I think this is what we know. We know it's highly transmissible. It's 4.2 times more transmissible than Delta. We know it's a robust virus and it's taking over from Delta in terms of being the most predominant virus. We know it's causing mild or moderate disease. But the question is, is it the virus itself that is not that virulent or deadly that isn't causing the severe disease? Or is it because of high levels of underlying immunity in South Africa, right. either through previous infections and or vaccination. And I think at this stage, that's the big question. Is it underlying immunity that's preventing severe disease or is the virus itself less severe? And what proportion of people then that are being admitted at this stage or that you're seeing have been vaccinated? So about 73% of the cases we've admitted are unvaccinated, but many of them are young children and adolescents who ordinarily wouldn't have been vaccinated by this stage. So at the moment, it's tilting towards mainly unvaccinated people. Certainly in the deaths that we've seen, and we've only had a mortality rate, and I say only every life is precious and every death uh, is a tragedy but we only have had a mortality rate of about 1.7% versus up to 20% in the previous waves. The majority of those cases have been unvaccinated. So it does point to the fact that vaccines do protect all natural immunity. We're not sure which is responsible, but certainly it has an impact. Yeah, I know it's difficult as well when this is all anecdotal as well. But in, again, of those that are coming in and seeing you, do you have a sense of those that have already had some form of COVID? Yes, we certainly take that history. And the study that came out this morning said that uh, a double dose of the Pfizer vaccine will give you a 70% protection against the severe disease or being admitted to hospital for the severe form of the disease. Uh, whereas it'll only give you a 33% uh, protection against um, the mild disease. There was a study done here in the Gauteng, it's the large, most populous uh, province of South Africa, that said up to 72% of people have antibodies or have immunity against um, COVID-19. And this may be playing a role in why we're seeing a very mild to moderate disease at the moment. Yeah, this is so important to understand. Um, and I want to just circle back to the point that you were making about the younger people that are being admitted and the lesser proportion of people at that younger age points that, that have been vaccinated. Do you think that's what perhaps is leading to the skew towards younger people rather than them perhaps uh, being more at risk of this latest variant? Just generally. Yes. Yes. Uh, 
We're seeing a lot of children and adolescents coming in, but honestly, we're seeing something we've never seen before. The only admissions we ever had that were COVID positive in the past were very sick patients. Mm. We now seeing, Julia, a cohort of patients who don't require oxygen. We call those incidental cases of COVID. They've come in for other medical or surgical procedures. They've come in for emergencies. They've come in for obstetric procedures or to give birth. And we happen to discover that they are COVID positive. And I think this is causing the large proportion of number of COVID cases in our hospital. You know, as we stand, we only have 16 patients in our ICUs that are ventilated. That is a fraction of the number of cases we have. It's 3%. In our first three waves, 24 or 25% of our cases were um, uh, being ventilated. And I think it just talks to the lack of severity, certainly at the moment. Yeah, I guess the only challenge to this is the um, how rapidly it spreads. So even today, where you've only got on a relative basis compared to previous waves, so few people in the ICU, as this thing continues to spread, the risk is that those numbers increase just by sheer magnitude. Richard, I know it's difficult to predict at this stage, but are you confident that, that your medical staff can handle this wave and handle it far better based on what you're seeing today compared to other waves? I think we've got a lot of experience from the previous three waves, but as we've all learnt, uh, we know very little about COVID-19 and the textbook is still being written. And so we may be surprised, but the early indications are pointing to the fact that a large majority of cases can be treated at a primary care level as opposed to a hospital level. And certainly if this trend were to continue, um, I think we're well positioned to deal with this pandemic. It's early days. We've only been in it for 30 days and it's now spreading to the other provinces. But if this trend does continue, I certainly believe uh, that we'll be able to deal with it more adequately than we did with the first three very virulent waves. Yeah, there's hope certainly in that. And uh, we pray for those that are uh, severely ill and uh, pray for their recovery. Richard, great to have you with us. Thank you to you and all your staff that are now working hard to keep people safe. Um, Richard Friedland there, the CEO of NetCare, sir. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running this Tuesday, and it's a cautious picture for U.S. stocks with the major averages falling for a second straight day. We're still only around one and a half percent away from all time highs. So perspective on this is important, but markets remain vulnerable to lots of headline risk. The U.S. reporting a scorching hot read on U.S. factory level inflation today. Producer prices soaring almost 10 percent on a year over year basis last month, and that certainly impacted sentiment this morning. It's also the last big piece of economic data before the Fed begins its last two-day policy meeting of the year today. How will they decide to act? That is the question. Now, for most businesses, the challenge of higher prices, managing COVID, supply chain disruptions, keeping customers happy and investing for growth is more than enough. Back office work like IT infrastructure, payrolls, taxes and payments to and from suppliers is an essential part of the business, but it's also a burden. And that's where Tipalti 
Hebrew for we handled it, comes in. The Israeli firm claims it eliminates around 80% of the typical workload for its clients, and they are of all shapes and sizes, but include big names like Amazon, Roku, Twitter, and Roblox. And joining us now, co-founder and CEO of Tipalti, Hen Amit. Hen, fantastic to have you on the show. It's a hugely neglected part of the business because one, I think it's not sexy, but two, it's not obviously productive, whether it's customer reach or growth investment, as I mentioned there in the introduction. And so it gets sidelined, but it is a crucial part of the business and you're monetizing it. Yeah, I think that's kind of the uh, the magic in what we're doing. It was neglected for so long and um, it's a huge market. It's uh, around a million customers worldwide that need this solution, completely underserved, 95% of that population uh, has no solution whatsoever. They use email and Excel and, and uh, manually uh, uh, writing checks and the such. And that's the opportunity for us. That's what got the uh, investors excited. We have a leadership position and, and are executing to grow as fast as we can into this market. Let's tip that statistic on its head. So what you're saying is, and you can describe the kind of customers beyond the big names that I mentioned that, that are already using your services, just 5% of these businesses are actually trying to improve their automation and to outsource this to tackle it more efficiently? Yeah, we tackle a, a tricky part of the market. Uh, I think it's a little bit easier in a way to serve small businesses. It's a little bit easier in a way to serve very large businesses where you can deploy a lot of resources. We tackle high growth, mid-market and high growth companies they are tricky because they have complex needs already. They, they actually, the finance departments want to act at a, ser- a similar level to that of larger enterprises, but in a mid-market company, they will never get the resources to do that. And that's why they do mm-hmm. it manually. So you need to have a relatively broad solution to serve them. You, you need to be relatively deep because they are already somewhat complex, these organizations, but it needs to be really simple and making it uh, really simple is hard work. Yeah, you ask for the budget to uh, attach, attack some of these things and they go, whoa, that's way too expensive. Um, how much does it cost to get these kind of services for the average medium-sized business? And I know that's a, um, a difficult thing because they're obviously a medium-sized business can be many things. Um, because I did read that around three quarters of the companies that you even go to and pitch your services for, no one else is pitching them to your point about this being a tricky segment. You're sort of out there on your yeah. own offering your services. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, an anecdote. One of our customers, when we asked them after implementation if there was any frustration in the process, they said their frustration was that they couldn't find anyone else to bid for the RFP, <laughs> for the request for proposal. Yeah. Yes. Uh, good for you. I was happy that that was le- their of frustration. Course. Yeah. Um, what, what's nice about Tipalti is that most of our revenue comes from transactions and currency conversion, which are tied to the uh, success, ebbs and lows of the, of the business. If a, a customer is, uh, is uh, growing fast, then they will succeed more and we will succeed with them. If like some of our customers uh, under COVID uh, were under pressure, so they, they obviously pay us less because we do less for them. So I think that's a real cool a- aspect of our pricing is that when you're more successful, that's great. When you're less successful, it'll cost you less. 
Yeah, and if you get your currency exchanges or remain unhedged wrong, you can lose a lot of money unnecessarily as well. I'm sure you've been discussing uh, crypto and blockchain technology. It's just when I hear payments and I hear uh, exchanges like that, suddenly my ears prick up. What kind of demand, if any, at this stage are you hearing from these kind of businesses for those kind of services? Yeah, the, the quick answer is zero. No, no, no demand whatsoever. That's the, the short answer. The longer answer is that crypto is really at the moment. It's and when I say at the moment, I mean since I started looking at it in 2011. So for the last 10 years, crypto is really an asset class uh, or a currency or a commodity. It's not commonly used uh, to transact. We are in the business of transacting, of paying people. That's less of the use case of crypto for now, maybe NFT, maybe metaverse, other uh, drivers will trigger a crypto to change gears, switch gears. For now, there's really no demand uh, for the reason I mentioned. Yeah. But if they ask for it one day, you'll provide it. It's just at this stage, no demand. Um, You're raising money successfully in the private markets, I know. And I've seen you make comments about a future potential listing. But actually, what interested me most about some recent comments that you made was that you mentioned hiring lots of people, but that you'd not physically met around half of your workforce. And I know this is more and more recent due to COVID. So a lot of people are struggling with this in high growth businesses. But Hen, how do you make that work when you don't have that kind of physical touch with people that are so critical to your business, particularly at a huge growth phase? So, you know, on one hand, evidently with the fundraising and valuation, everything, we're doing something right. We're successful. We're, we're growing of the course. business. Firing on all cylinders. But I, I agree with you. It, it feels like it hurts. Uh, for the first time in, I think, uh, 15 months, the executive team, we meet quarterly. For the first time in 15 months, we met uh, together in person uh, a couple of months ago. The experience was completely different than all those Zoom meetings. Zoom meetings can be efficient, but you're missing up, missing out on so many, you know, the uh, these interactions, these chit chats, this uh, whispering in, in the ear and all of that, <laughs> that uh, enriches the discussion. Uh, you meet, so I, I, I'm eager, eager to go back and meeting my team. Uh, it hurts me that when I don't and uh, whenever there's a window of uh, COVID uh, uh, remission, uh, I travel. Wherever, we have offices in many places. I'm, I'm looking forward to these opportunities. I, I travel as much as I can. Yeah, it, it resonated with me, just the need for innovation and to all be in the room. And, and that touch point for me is something certainly I miss. Um, so it's interesting to hear your perspective on that, too. Come back and talk to us soon, please. As always, many more questions, but we shall reconvene. Um, Hen, great to chat to you, the co-founder and CEO. Thank you very much. This. Thank you, sir. OK, and some breaking news now just into CNN. The British health minister has just announced his country will be removing all 11 countries from the red travel list. The countries are all in Africa and were added to the list after the Omicron variant was detected last month. Here's Sajid Javid making the announcement in the House of Commons just moments ago. Now that there is community transmission of Omicron in the UK and Omicron has spread so widely widely, uh, across the, the world, the travel red list is now less effective in slowing the incursion of Omicron from abroad. So I can announce today 
that whilst we'll maintain our temporary testing measures for international travel, we will be removing all 11 countries from the travel red list effective from 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. People arriving from red list countries have to isolate at their own expense for 10 days. Critics have said the red list was punitive against African nations and didn't help prevent the spread of the variant. We'll watch for other nations to follow suit perhaps in the coming days. Now, coming up after the break, another company taking humans out of the equation, kind of. Once Elon Musk warned about an AI apocalypse, now a British firm making lifelike robots is on his radar. All the details after the break. Welcome back to First Move and prepare for your jaw to hit the floor. Take a look at this video of a robot waking up. It soon went viral and prompted a response even from Elon Musk. This robot is called Amica and will go on show at the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, next month. It's made by a UK firm and costs around $130,000. Now, Here's the scary bit, if that price isn't scary. Its lifelike silicon skin is wrapped around a metal and plastic body with motors to pull expressions. They're made to draw crowds at exhibitions and trade shows, but also a platform for potential AI developers. This one is called Mesma. Elon Musk says he wants to build a humanoid prototype called a Tesla bot. Well, in a response to a video, Musk didn't mince his words, tweeting, real androids are coming. And Will Jackson is founder and CEO of Engineered Arts and joins us now. Well, when I watched this video, I was blown away by the facial expressions. Just explain the technology, please, behind what you've created. Yeah, with Amica, what we're trying to do is use the full capacity of the human face for communication. So it's about recreating all the expressions, the small nuances, wink of an eye, bat of an eyelid, uh, the ways that we communicate non-verbally, so not just talking, uh, but using all these subtle gestures. I mean, it's astonishing. Even just the hand movements as well and the surprise and then the almost joy that it seems to display. I mean, I read that you have cameras, depth sensors, use LiDAR technology. Is it motion sensor? I sort of think of the movie Avatar. How exactly are you creating those movements? What's the stimuli? Okay, so there are a number of actually simple programs that build up the movement that you see. So uh, at the very simplest level is just to do with the way the eyelids move in relation to where the eyes are. Uh, within the eyes are two cameras. So uh, we're running computer vision there that can detect faces, expressions. It can do uh, estimation of what your expression is. Are you happy? Are you sad? Uh, we can also do gender, age estimation. So the robot knows quite a lot about you. That doesn't mean it's sentient. It's not, it's not thinking. It's basically using this stimulus to execute different parts of its computer code. So can it mimic you? So if I walked up to it and smiled, yeah, yes. is it clever enough to yes, get that it, person smiling at me? I'll smile back. Yes, it will. So one of the things we were just working on actually this morning is just also looking at hand gestures. So 
what does it mean, you know, when I wave, when I point? Uh, there are all kinds of hand gestures I won't make. Um, you know, <laughs> when should a robot take offense? What's a friendly gesture? What's not? We know um, there are so many rapid advances in computer vision. We're able to roll all these things into the robot. What many people don't have who are researching in this area is a platform to work on. So, uh, you know, if you troll around YouTube, you'll find some fantastic machine learning examples. But generally, it's always done with simulations. It's not done in the real world. So what we wanted to bring to that was a real physical presence. I was liken it to you can go and see Jaws at the movies or you can swim in the sea with a shark. It's a completely different experience when you're up close with a real robot. Wow. I mean, some of these things are astonishing and it makes uh, no surprise, I think, to uh, my viewers to know that, that some of your um, customers include uh, Madame Tussauds, but among them too, um, National Geographic, Facebook, NASA. I mean, you've got some incredibly high profile um, customers. When you're talking to me about the prospect of being able to identify certain characteristics of individuals that the eyes see as well, suddenly my ears prick up. And I did read that you said you'll never work with governments. Uh, and I think I'm sort of answering my own question here, but why? We do work with governments. We just don't work on defence. So okay. just to clarify there, yes. so we we have a little internal saying, which is uh, make people laugh, don't make them cry. Or if they do cry, make it in a good way. So uh, I I personally believe that the, the compelling reason to make a humanoid robot is for human interaction. It's about talking to people. It's about expressing. It's about understanding expressions. It's basically a, a portal to the digital domain. So... Imagine that uh, there's been a lot of talk about the metaverse. Imagine you've got a character in the metaverse and you can come out of that metaverse and inhabit a humanoid robot in a remote place, a place maybe you've never been. So these are the kind of possibilities we're interested in. Uh, we're not interested really in the defense and military possibilities. Yeah, I've got visions of myself now appearing at a meeting in robotic form and its facial expressions mirroring my own. So I have to be slightly less expressive or get myself into trouble. Um, let's talk about Tesla bots, because obviously Elon Musk responded to one of your videos. Yikes. You've expressed an interest in working with him, perhaps, and some of this technology being yeah, used. If yeah. Elon's watching, what would you like to say to him? Hello. Um, so, yeah, of course, a huge admirer of Elon Musk. You know, for one person to achieve all the engineering feats that Elon Musk has achieved is just just a breathtaking. So we were quite, uh, you know, we all sat up in our chairs and paid attention when when we saw the Tesla bot video go out. A little bit disappointed to see a man dressed up in a robot suit uh, for the uh, launch <laughs> demo there. Uh, so, but. We think, you know, we've been uh, working on humanoid robots for 15 years. We've worked on biped and walking robots. We've worked on expressive gesturing robots. So really, uh, we're just very enthusiastic about the project. Uh, it is a little bit hard to see exactly what the commercial use case would be within, within Tesla because I don't mm. really see much of a use case for utility tasks if you if you're going to build build cars or something like that an industrial robot is probably your best choice i think where these kind of robots really really work well is where you have a large number of people so a crowded uh, museum shopping mall uh, sports events airport terminals i think these are the kind of areas where a humanoid robot can work really well 
TV anchors maybe one day, she says, hoping to stay in bed. Oh. Um, just one day. <laughs> just one day. Um, one of your much. quotes. <laughs> I know. One of your quotes. Give us 10% of your budget and we'll see if you can beat you to it. That's my challenge to Elon Musk. Can you beat Elon yeah. Musk? Do you think at this well? Modestly? Well, I think. I, I think what you get, you always need competition for a team. So if you're putting okay. a, a team together, it, the last thing you want to do is just give them unlimited budget and tell them, uh, you know, there's nobody else to race against. So we're quite happy to be the person to race against. Of course, you've got some really great uh, other competition. There's fantastic robots from Boston Dynamics and uh, other companies. Uh, Boston Dynamics tend to, to focus on mobility so it's it's all about movement locomotion whereas we're more about expression and interaction so i'd say that's the difference there but we would just we love a working gentleman. on humanoid robots a gentleman there shouting out uh, for the competition as well or supremely confident one we'll uh, we'll let our viewers decide great to have you with us uh, come back soon please for jackson founder and ceo of engineered arts thank you Okay, coming up on First Move, it's that most wonderful time of the year. If you happen to be long energy, tech and other Wall Street winners, the stocks you want to meet under the mistletoe and those that have lost lots of dough. Next. Welcome back to First Move. And it's that time of year once again where Santa checks his list of stocks that have been both naughty or nice. A good year for markets overall, but a lot of grinches to make us grumble too. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, let's go naughty first, please. Do you want to talk about the lumps of coal, if you will? Yes. Uh, that would be, yeah, casino stocks have had a rough go. Penn National Gaming, one of the worst performers in the S&P 500, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn Resorts. I think a lot of that, Julia, has to do with all the competition in, you know, online uh, sports betting, you know, from the likes of DraftKings and what have you. That, I think, is hurting. But also, you know, concerns about travel. I don't think mm. people have flocked back to Vegas or Macau, for that matter. And that's hurting the casino companies, too. And let's talk about nice, not nice in terms of higher prices uh, for gas costs and petrol costs around the world, but great if you're an energy stock investor. Yeah, the top uh, stock in the S&P 500, uh, Devon Energy, uh, you know, an oil and gas company. You've got other big oil firms like Marathon Petroleum and Diamondback Energy, which has my favorite ticker, Julia, because it literally is a FANG stock. Its ticker is F-A-N-G, you know, talking about the Diamondback snake. So that's your FANG winner. Forget about Facebook or Meta and all those other tech companies. FANG is the way to go uh, if you want a big winner this year. It's a fake FANG. And now the FANG is MANG, isn't it? Because of Meta. <laughs> Yes, I think well, I think some people are talking about uh, you know Mana as well. Yes, you know, replaced with N- like Nvidia. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We we no, got to stay. Exactly. I'm, I'm being told to shut up. I tell you what, Amica the robot. I don't know whether you saw that, Paul. At least Amica would shut up when told to. I'm being told again. I've got to go. Paul and Monica, great to chat to you. But Elon Musk would Thank not. You. You're you are completely right. No, really, I'm getting it. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next. And I'll see you tomorrow, maybe. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.